the pipeline of women was always there. The idea that we weren't there, we were there and waiting and sometimes knocking on the door. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. And this week, we talked to the Bank of America's vice chairwoman, Anne Finucane. So I had bad days, bad weeks, bad months. I had a couple of bad years, but I just kind of hung in there. Uh, much to my delight, sometimes other people don't hang in. She's been at Bank of America now for over two decades, and she's got a lot on her plate. She's most responsible for the bank's investment into all of its social causes. That's billions of dollars pumped into things like environmental initiatives and community development. But before her broad portfolio at the bank, she was most known for one thing, turning the company's image around after the 2008 financial crisis. The Bank of America agreed today to a record settlement, nearly $17 billion over its role in selling bad mortgages as instruments that helped trigger the financial crisis. That it had settled its investigation into the Bank of America with a record-breaking financial penalty. And I just love returning to those days. <laughs> it was, to say the least, a difficult job, the hardest of Finucane's career. Things sort of hit um, a low point in 2009, we were really not out of that until 2014-15. We spoke with Finucane about what she learned from it all, how Bank of America bounced back, and what women had to do with it. We also talked about what's in store for the company under President Trump's administration. This is an unusual administration by any measure. There are benefits, and there are places where we don't agree. Stay tuned for our interview with Ann Finucane. On the podcast... We'll be bringing you real talk with women bosses, asking how did you make it and what advice would you give a woman looking to lead? If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter at DC. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866. Women Rule is produced by Politico in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. And now, our interview with Anne Finucane. Anne, thank you so much for joining us. You are one of the banking world's not only most powerful women, but most powerful people. You are vice chair of Bank of America and have a very big portfolio at the bank. I was reading about it uh, this morning. Talk to us about what you're doing right now. I mean, there seems like there's a lot of couple different pockets of work. Yeah. So uh, first, thanks for having me. Um, what am I doing? Well, there is sort of my bro- broad portfolio is um, working on capital deployment. I'll explain that in a minute uh, into social causes, and uh, then I have uh, public policy, community development marketing, media. Uh, I oversee our foundation. Um, I oversee a series of commitments we've made to various um, efforts like the environmental initiative, $125 billion uh, to be deployed by uh, 2025. So those are the broad strokes. And then pending regulatory approval, I'll be the chairman of our European bank, which we will headquarter in Dublin. Wow. No uh, shortage of things to do. No. What, what is a day in the life? People ask me all the time, 
What is, how does your day start? What does it look like? What does a day in Ann Finucane's life look like? Yeah, slow start because I hate getting up in the morning, but I'm, <laughs> I'm up at six nonetheless. Um, uh, read, 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 including Politico. Um, I'd like to hear that. Yeah. Um, then um, I travel a lot, so I could be in my sort of usual haunts are uh, Boston, New York, Washington. A little bit on the West Coast and now more often in Europe because of our uh, European headquarters. We're dealing with Brexit, and um, this is true of every industry, but particularly in financial services, we've got to stand up uh, European headquarters uh, that uh, the UK and Europe have to be separated. We have to be thinking about it as a hard Brexit. Everyone would like it to go... uh, take a little longer and go a bit more smoothly, but we can't anticipate that. So we've got a plan for a truly hard Brexit, which means we are good to go by March of 19, so less than a year. That's a short turnaround. Yeah, it is a short turnaround. Then I might be focused on public policy, what's going on on the Hill, um, what's going to affect us, or what we want to affect us or not affect us. Uh, then I spend a, a fair amount of time on Uh, This idea about capital deployment, where do we put our money that um, has real social effects? So if you take the U.N. sustainability goals, uh, so sustainable goals, um, there are 17 of them. We actually affect some of those. We're the largest underwriter of green bonds in the world. So um, I mean, that might not be forever, but that will only mean because there's more and better competition. So that would be a good thing. Um, we have a big interest in water, uh, the use of water and, and the accessibility to water, which is such a basic but such a problem, particularly in some um, developing parts of the world. It's very worthy work. It, this is very different than when I was reading about kind of your history. You've been at Bank 22 years, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you did a lot of kind of management of the brand through the crisis. Yeah. Very obviously, very different kind of shifting of focus. But take us back to that. Uh, you know your work then. How did you? Is there some practical advice about how you kind of turned a huge company under fire in the public around? Was there a, a strategy that you you know kind of said a message on certain things, or what was kind of your your thought process there? Um, well, it wasn't just my thought process, and I just love returning to those days. Um, but in 2007, Bank of America acquired Countrywide, largest mortgage servicer in the country. Uh, then the financial crisis happens in full, and we, uh, shall we say, unexpectedly also acquired Merrill Lynch. Now we are in full-blown mode in terms of being in the middle of the financial crisis. Um, I'm not saying Bank of America wouldn't have had any issues, but we really weren't a Wall Street firm, Merrill Lynch, Mm -hmm. and we weren't in the subprime business countrywide. But there we were in the middle of it with uh, arguably two of the top brands in those issues. So uh, that was a reality check for us. Um, Add on to that that... Our then-CEO, Ken Lewis, decided to retire. Brian Moynihan came in. And Brian decided with a team of uh, people, a management team, of which I was one, that we might as well just deal with this head-on. And that is 
be realistic about what we were really dealing with. Uh, we had investments in all sorts of other things, like other banks, uh, foreign banks, mm-hmm. um, in Brazil and China, in Europe. So sold all that. And we uh, focused on the eight lines of business that we have. I won't go into that with you. Um, but we focused on what was going to be core to our business. We settled the cases that we could settle, the largest in U.S. history with the U.S. Uh, with the Justice Department. I thought I'd get to that before you got to it. Um, <laughs> and um, make my job easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, we just we just sort of uh, you know like Sherman to the sea. We just kept going till we could complete the task, but. In the middle of this, we also wanted to think about how to build a company for the future. And when you do that, when you lay it all out, uh, it makes you think about everything. What is the makeup of the board? What is the makeup of the senior management? What are the benefits that you're giving to your people? What are the products and services you're offering to your customers? What are the fees you're charging them? Uh, What is your role in the communities in which you work and live? And then how do you reset the dial so that you really change, uh, evolve the company to a point where, of course, from a shareholder point of view, they're going to see good results, that we're going to make money, and that all those constituencies will feel they've got a true good company to deal with. So that was the task. The board was changed. We have 30% of our board are women and about the same are diverse people of color. Mm The senior management team, 40% are women. 43% of the entire population of the company are diverse in some way. Uh, we. Why was that? I just want to stop you for a second. Why was that important? I, I know you've talked about it before, but yeah. I mean, those are pretty significant stats, particularly in the right. banking industry. Right. Well, it's important because if you can be a reflection of your customer base and your community base, then you're just going to do a better job, one. And two, if you're not all the same around a table, questions get asked. And I think that it would be fair to say that there was less diversity pre-2008 in the financial services industry and probably less questions were asked. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's a good thing. Um, And I think that the proof is clear. I mean, we're a much better company today than we were 10 years ago. How long did... The turnaround take. I mean, that, that you're changing the culture. You're, ch- I mean, trying to really install a different kind of methodology there. Methodo- methodology there. Excuse me. Were you expecting at two years you were going to be able to, you know, get the the culture on the right track, or was it a ten year plan, a play? Well, it wasn't a ten year plan or play, but it almost took that long. It wasn't uh, as quickly uh, completed as I would like, but you had to also deal with the ebbs and flows of the economy. Um, So if you think about everything sort of hit um, a low point in 2009, we were really not out of that until 2014, 15. So I would say 16, 17, 18 have all been good, each year better than the one before it. Talk to me a little bit about in that time, and I want to get to your personal backstory and, and, and some other things too that we always kind of hit on. Uh, for these women rule podcasts, but I do want to ask. Uh, you know, you said you've said that that was the most challenging time of your professional life. Um, how did you work through it, and did you ever think of quitting? No, I never thought of quitting. 
because I felt um, uh, one thing is that uh, I I I, um, I perform better in crisis. I don't know what that says about me, but um, maybe it's that's when I'm paying attention. Uh, and I felt that um, I wanted to contribute. I wanted to fix this. I wanted to help fix it. And uh, I had great respect and um, uh, a belief in Brian Moynihan, our CEO, and for the team that that decided to stay and stick it out and try to fix it. You were charged with a lot of the messaging in Washington. So obviously you, you right. talked a lot about the internal culture that you're trying to right. shift it. What was that like? Because you're going to the Hill to people that you've known, that you personally know, that respect you, and you're kind of saying, this is my word, we're going to do these things. Right. Was that difficult? How, how did you make that happen, I guess? Well, of course it was difficult. Um, it was at a time that – it was an interesting time. Obviously, Barney Frank was the um, – chairman of the Financial Services Committee, and, and Chris Stodd was the uh, chairman of the Senate Banking Committee. Um, banks didn't have many friends in Washington. Uh, and then with the Obama administration coming in, that sort of further complicated it. Uh, one, There were a couple of things. One, Dodd-Frank was going to happen. And uh, so the idea that banks were going to resist Dodd-Frank what, uh, why it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I was much more interested in could we make it workable? And I don't mean could we make it easy. I mean could we make – can we address the issues that would be raised? Would we be able to get on the other side of them? Would we be able to work our way through those? Um, I did not resist CFPB. I know others did. My feeling was it was inevitable uh, that the – American public needed some, um, wanted to see belt and suspenders uh, on consumer policy. We were, if not the largest consumer bank, because once you had done all the um, other acquisitions and mergers in other other banks, there were three that were about the same size, um, that we owed it to the American public to demonstrate we would do all of these things. So I I didn't argue with that. I might not have agreed with all the methodology or some of the rhetoric, but the concept was acceptable. And it's obviously gotten better and easier. You've uh, Wells Fargo now has the the target on its back, right, with all the things that they're going through. Yeah, but that doesn't help us. So it doesn't help us or JP or City to have Wells with a uh, target on its back because, like anything, they raise the specter that, well, what's going on elsewhere? And um, so I think it's really regrettable because, honestly, I think that the banks have uh, really taken all of this to heart, made real fundamental changes, and are pretty transparent about it. I mean, there's nothing that we aren't in better shape about. Our satisfaction scores are what they were pre-crisis, or better, actually. Our... um, our reputation in general, our favorability is higher. What we stand for, our mission, and and uh, what we can deliver better. Our um, stock price is multiples of what it was at its worst. Uh, our earnings are much better. You know, the highest we've had since two thousand and six. Maybe if I adjust for the tax reform um, uh, 
consideration better. Uh, our employees are much happier, low attrition. We have real good um, uh, people and highly uh, technically oriented. Lots of millennials. That's sort of our biggest cohort in, in terms of both customers and employees. So uh, all good. One area you talked about, women, you've obviously, diversity, you've gotten better in that area. There's still, as an industry, has not been a woman who's chaired or leading a U.S. bank. Right. What's your feeling on that? Do you, is it just a matter of time? Well, wait, Beth Mooney is a key corp. I mean, it's a smaller, a smaller bank. Smaller, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. One of the big. Yeah. Well, I think that will change. I think sort of, um, I mean, if you think in terms of decades, and you could think in terms of months, but if, I think it, within this decade, we will see other uh, the CEOs, because you'll have turnover, and I think that there's a pretty good chance you're going to see some women at the top. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't guarantee that, and it looks like Goldman won't have that, but uh, I, I think that there's a pretty good chance you'll see it at Bank of America or JP or... Uh, city or Wells. One of the things that we talk a lot about is access to boards for women, that there isn't a lot of that. You've served on some. What's your sense? Is the pipeline going to start there more, or are there things that need to be done? In Washington, the conversation is often maybe heads of offices you know, here that run the big public policy. You should There should start to be a pipe, pipeline for them to get onto the boards of some of the companies. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's a lot better than it was even just a few years ago. Right. Um, we have 30%. I don't think we should mandate that by law, although the Europeans are. Uh, and we're moving in that direction at any rate. Uh, I serve on a public board, and we have a third of the women, a third of the border women there, too. So... I, I see differences, and I've seen a huge difference in just the last three or four years. Um, the pipeline of women was always there. So the idea that we weren't there, we were there and waiting and sometimes knocking on the door. Uh, I just think the door has been opened, and I do think uh, in just talking to headhunters, they serve on a nonprofit board with um, a head of one of the uh, recruiting firms, and he says that the uh, the desire to have more women on uh, respective boards has really grown. So, I think, and of course, the more once you have a few women on the board, they start pushing for more. Right. Right. Like, you know, I mean, I'm not saying this is good enough, but I'm saying I think there is momentum. Well, let's take a step back. Uh, we often go kind of through the history of how people got to where they are. Uh, as we said, you've been at Bank a long time, but you also had jobs in city politics, local broadcasting, advertising. Uh, you were a self-professed hippie when you were young. Um, how did you turn into one of the most influential figures in banking? Did you know that that's where you were going to be? Sure. When I was a hippie, I definitely <laughs> was thinking that. Let me think. Uh, <laughs> I would like to go into banking. Uh, no. For, uh, you know, this hippie thing maybe is overplayed a little um, <laughs> in that when I went to school in the 70s, your, um, a lot of your time was caught up in uh, either protesting the war or, or, or dealing with the Vietnam War with brothers and 
friends and boyfriends, etc. cetera. Uh, for the most part, I try to avoid going to Vietnam, and those that did, uh, trying to return safely. And an administration that I think by any measure was less than 100% honest with the American public. So I think I was probably mainstream. It's just that uh, I might have taken it a more, little more seriously. Uh, and, I mean, I came to Washington and marched to the Washington Mall, and my recreation was listening to uh, concerts for war protest, etc. But it was far more mainstream and much more um, fundamental to, at that point, people that were between the ages of 18 and 24, um, our lives. It, it, it was really fundamental. So it wasn't kind of a pastime. Mm-hmm. I graduated from college. I needed to work. I went into city government. Um, I then matriculated to Westinghouse Broadcasting, which doesn't exist anymore. CBS bought most of what uh, was for those O&O stations. And then I went into advertising for 14 years. And with each one of those, I kind of evolved into, I went from the creative side, so I was on the creative side of those businesses, until about halfway through uh, advertising when I had had enough kids where I couldn't travel. Um, I was the executive producer ahead of uh, creative services, and I just couldn't travel as much as I had before. And I had, but I had up until then traveled so much with clients that I would get to know their, you're on the road with them, you get to know their business. And I liked their businesses, and I liked the business aspect. I'd always liked business. So um, I then ultimately headed up all the business in advertising. And from and I had banks in the portfolio, and I understood banking to a degree. Turns out I didn't understand it quite <laughs> as well as I thought. And um, there were this was now by the mid '90s. There were a ton of mergers going on all over the country, and I was recruited to be essentially what would be the chief marketing officer at uh, one of those super regionals fleet, and. I did it kind of on a whim. I just wanted to see what corporate America was like because advertising isn't really corporate America and neither is broadcasting. I mean, you are witness to it. I suppose you're owned by it, but you don't feel like you are it. Mm-hmm. And I thought I would you know, just try it. And here I am 22 years later. But my the appeal for me was that it was going to be a lot of mergers and acquisitions, which is sort of a proxy for a crisis. Right. And I would be able to do that. I knew I could pay attention to that. And it would use the skills that I had in uh, politics, public policy, uh, advertising, polling, um, customer behavior and trends, those would all be things that would be useful. Mm -hmm. And they were useful. And in the meantime, I learned the banking business. Did you have an aha moment where you said, all right, like I've made the right decision? I mean, this is a, it's a shift, right? It's using a lot of the same skills again, like the theme of crisis, I feel like is where you're kind of have the steady hand on the ship. Was there that moment where you're like, all right, yes, this is, this is the company I want to work at. This is, I've made the decision. Yeah, no, I'm not an aha moment person. Um, I should be, but I'm not. I just, uh, I, I know if it feels right and it felt right. 
I mean, it was a, a digression from where I thought I would be. So if my 20-year-old self had seen my 45-year-old self, I think I would have freaked. <laughs> but she didn't. And uh, I was also uh, married and divorced, uh, remarried, four kids, three stepchildren. I'd grown up a lot. And I think my politics are probably the same, but you have to apply them as an adult. And there wasn't a raging Vietnam War either. So I just had a, uh, is there an epiphany? Slow one, I guess, (laughs) but I suppose so. In terms of that having kids, juggling, something that a lot of our listeners um, think a lot about, we talk a lot about on this podcast, was there a... How did you kind of manage that, the pulling back or, you know, raising kids? You know, it's something that going back into the workforce is something a lot of my girlfriends and I talk about all the time. Well, I think it's actually – do you have kids? I don't, but a lot of of my friends do. But I don't think it's so much about having kids. I I mean, I think that makes it harder. I think all of us, men and women, but I understand women better than I understand men, so I'll just say – I think we all have these um, pretty complicated lives. You probably work all the time. You do have a family, an extended family. You have friends. You'd like to see them. uh, And you have interests. Well, same with uh, children, just maybe make it more complicated. But you just have to make a decision every day how it's going to go. And I know for me, uh, and I have said this before, that I always thought, well, I'm going to probably be working for a long time. I love working. So I never didn't want to work. I've always liked working. I've liked working since I was 16 years old, earlier, but for sure from 16 on. And I wanted to work. I, I wanted to have these children. I uh, had married a journalist, which helps because the hours are a little more flexible and he didn't have to dress up in a suit. So, uh, But... I um, I just didn't think it was going to go well every day, and guess what? I was right. <laughs> so I had bad days, bad weeks, bad months. I had a couple of bad years, uh, but I just kind of hung in there. And uh, much to my delight, sometimes other people don't hang in. So sometimes other people went past me, and it was uh, bittersweet because I felt that either – I was just as good as they were, or maybe I felt I was better at the job than they were, but I couldn't put in the time or travel as much as they did. And then in other cases, I benefited because people dropped out. So that's a selfish thing, but it's a true thing. And um, I have hoped, I hope, that my kids didn't uh, get too badly uh, deprived. Uh, Certainly I've had my moments of guilt, They've helped with that. and um, But I, I, if I had to do it again, I'd probably do it the same way. That's a pretty good answer. Yeah. I mean, you feel pretty good looking back. I want to talk just a little bit. We're running out of time, but um, kind of bring it back to the here and now. Washington, the Trump administration kind of navigating this new normal. How do you approach it? This is you're you've been in business for 22 years. This is a businessman who's in the White House or, you know, the, the an administration that purports to look at government more like a business. Well, I've been in business more than 40 years. Sorry. I've just been in banking Sorry. for 22 years. Uh, so 
this is an unusual administration by any measure. There are benefits and there are places where we don't agree. So uh, the tax reform bill is uh, beneficial, we think, to uh, individuals, middle class. I mean, th- this will have to play out over time. And uh, certainly to companies, which means that we can invest more, we can hire more people, better wages, etc. Um, on the other hand, uh, we are going to stay the course on our environmental commitment on COP21. Uh, we're aware that the administration is not favoring that, but we made the commitment. We feel that it's a good business opportunity. We also think to be a citizen of communities or a citizen of the world that we have to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions, and it's real, and we all have to do our part, and we can do things in the hundreds of billions of dollars. So uh, we're entirely committed there, and we'll stay the course. So I think that happily we have the ability to uh, think independently and um, we want to be supportive of uh, America in general and uh, very proud to be a bank named Bank of America. So I think we are trying to navigate it with with an eye toward the long term, not a, uh, toward one administration versus another. Do you look more to the Hill in this time just because, you know, you guys have probably, I'm sure, longstanding relationships there as kind of the steady hand in Washington at this moment? I think we look to what are the big issues and who's going to help solve them. Um, What we'd like is that government looks more to business to help solve them. And that's what I'm more interested in. What role can we play and can we uh, demonstrate some value to everybody? Is there any area right now, I mean, you've talked about a lot of them, but that you think Bank of America in particular is ready to lead on, that you're looking for a partner in Washington? Well, I think there's a, a few things, and I think we do have a partner in Washington. I think uh, cyber, cybersecurity, uh, the banks are uh, put a lot of money, billions of dollars into cybersecurity, and I do think there is an association uh, both with uh, legislative branch, administrative branch and sort of security in general. Um, We are very focused on deploying capital to uh, deal with true issues that are facing America. And um, I don't feel any impediment there. I just think that we are doing that and we can do more. So that's where my head's at. I think this is all the time we have. Thank you so much, Anne, for your time. Thank you, Anna. Women Rule is produced by Rena Flores. Dave Shaw is our executive producer, and our booker is Jessica Andrews. If you're a fan of the show and you listen on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. We've got a lot of great guests coming up. In coming weeks, we'll bring you conversations with the Skim founders, Danielle Weisberg and Carly Zakin, the CEO of Swell, Sarah Koss, and a ton of other awesome women. You don't want to miss any of those episodes, so hit the subscribe button, and thanks for listening.